bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs, Alan Sellers, and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on the future of standards. Nowadays, basically, the way that standards are used is, is quite different from how it was 20 or 30 years ago. They're no longer uh, a document that you kind of file away on a shelf and forget about or occasionally go off and refer to and scribble on, go around to a design desk and make sure that someone's been compliant, tick it off on a piece of paper and then um, go back. So the way that um, standards are actually used is increasingly in software. We need to make sure that standards uh, can easily Uh, be transferred into uh, a machine-readable format so that you can get standards into uh, requirements management software or into your CAD program or into your BIM model or into your automation system. Uh, This is what we uh, now refer to as smart uh, standards. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with Alan Sellers. Hello, Matthew. And I'm also with Cindy Parakil. Hi, Matthew. Now, today's episode is all about the future of standards. The voice you heard at the top of the episode was from one of our guests today, Ivan Salcedo, talking about his work in the development of smart standards. As well as Ivan, you'll also hear from Catherine Hunter talking about BSI Flex, a new type of standard designed to keep pace with innovations and fast developing technologies. Both Ivan and Catherine set out some of the changes underway for how standards are made, updated and used out in the real world. And just as interestingly, they tell us about some of the important elements of standards making that will not be changing. It was great to learn about how the standards making process is evolving to reflect the dynamic and iterative nature of innovation, um, specifically that BSI Flex was a result of trying to find a process that marries up rapid speed of technological change with the core principles of standards development. That was really interesting. I liked how Catherine broke down the circumstances or criteria in which ISO standards, PASs and BSI Flex are most suited. That really helped to put things into perspective. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned uh, PASs there, Cindy. For a bit more information on what a PAS is, check out episode 12 of the podcast where we shine a spotlight on PAS 440 for responsible innovation. And don't forget, if there's a standard on which you'd like us to shine a spotlight, then just drop us an email at education at bsigroup.com. Now, before we move on, I just want to mention one of Ivan's comments. In my chat with him, he talks about being a complexity vortex. Now, you'll have to listen to our conversation to understand what he means by that. But for some reason, that comment made me think of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, which was a BBC radio series first broadcast in 1978, uh, which became a book and then a TV series and eventually a rather disappointing Hollywood film. Now, I said that Complexity Vortex reminded me of the total improbability drive, which powered Zaphod Beeblebrox's spaceship with a heart of gold. Now, it turns out what I meant to say was the infinite improbability drive. I think, Matthew, that you are thinking there of the total perspective vortex. Now, I'm going to read from the guide itself. It is in theory possible to extrapolate the whole of creation, every galaxy, every sun, 
every planet that orbits their composition and their economic and social history from, say, one small piece of fairy cake. The machine was originally created by its inventor, Trintragula, as a way to get back at his wife. She was always telling him to get a sense of proportion, so he showed her the vortex. Tracula was horrified to learn he had destroyed her mind, even as he proved his point that if life was going to live in such a vast universe, one thing it could not afford to have was a sense of perspective. I absolutely have no idea what you two are talking about. <laughs> Alan, thank you. You're absolutely right. You've uh, completely put me straight there. Now, I think I've gained the perspective I've gained here is that discovering that maybe I'm not as big a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide as I thought I was, or uh, maybe I'm just getting to that stage when I just start forgetting things. Um, but actually, there is there is one standards link to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which he says uh, getting out his metaphorical crowbar. Here he goes again, Cindy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Alan, as you know, being a fan, because clearly you are, the main character of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one Arthur Dent. Now, in one of the scenes, he sets the Heart of Gold's new traumatic drinks dispenser the challenge of making him a cup of tea. Cue hilarious exchange between stereotypical Englishmen and a computer about boiling leaves and whether it's milk in first or second. Now, back in 2015, to coincide with International Tea Day that year, now this year it's the 21st of May, so pop that in your diaries, tea fans, BSI thought that they had definitively ruled on this most important of issues and published a set of guidelines on making the perfect cup of tea. So back in 2015, we said, if you want your tea with milk, the milk must be poured into the cup first before the tea is added. The temperature of the water mustn't exceed 85 degrees Celsius to ensure it doesn't scald the milk, but should be above 60 degrees Celsius for optimum flavour and sensation. Now, I'm a big tea drinker, uh, and I'm glad to say I'm not just being on message here, but of course, that's absolutely right. As any proper person knows, it's milk in first, obviously. Alan, Cindy, milk in first? No milk for me. Oh, radical, Cindy? Mm. Milk in last for me, Matthew. Have you listened to a single word I've just said? <laughs> I, I, I might just have to disagree with you there. Well, I might have to channel my inner Jackie Weaver here and throw you off the podcast. You have no authority here, Matthew Charles. <laughs> now, guys, uh, how's your week been? What have you, what have you both been up to? Cindy, have you, uh, have you been out running in that there lovely Vienna? I have. So far, um, I've gotten in a run every day of the week. Uh, the weather has been piercing cold here in Vienna, but to my surprise, I enjoy running in this climate. I may even go as far as saying I prefer it to running in the warm weather. What about you, Matthew? What do you prefer? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big runner too. And I'm a bit like you, actually. I prefer it when it's slightly cooler. Yeah, uh, It's definitely easier to warm up than it is to cool down. It's very cold here and icy. So I haven't done much running in the past in the past few days. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think, uh, I think the cooler mm -hmm. weather is, is better for running. Alan, how about you? How's your week been? Yeah, we reached DEFCON 2 in our house after the smell of burning rubber and smoke began to pour from one of our kitchen appliances. In a home of six, you know, the tumble dryer is a piece of critical infrastructure. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a nightmare. We we called up the uh, the guys that can come and fix these sorts of things, and 
apparently 125 quid on average to fix. But, you know, working in household appliances, I just couldn't let this go. <laughs> so all that needed replacing was a £20 tumble dry belt. So job done. It was. That's true. I think, as you say, as being an engineer and working in household appliances, I think that was a job you had to do yourself, wasn't it? <laughs> I kind of think I must have had to think about reorganising my priorities if I couldn't get that done. <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to this week, Matthew? Well, as I say, it's been pretty pretty cold and icy. We had some. Uh, we had London snow, which means a light flurry, which means everything goes, uh, everything stops. But um, mm-hmm. very very cold. So I've been on the turbo trainer this week a bit more, trying to get some exercise in. Something actually I bought a couple of months before lockdown one, uh, which was lucky really, because if you tried to buy a turbo trainer during lockdown in March, you just couldn't get them. Uh, but I must say, it's been an absolute life saver, life saver for us. Um, there's three of us in the house that can use it. So child B, she's a bit too small, can't quite reach the pedals. Uh, but child A definitely can. So three of us have been taking advantage of the turbo train. But because of that, you sometimes have to book or queue in order to, in order to get a place. I know that problem quite too well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. So that's enough about, about our week then, really. How about, uh, I think it's probably worth mentioning at this point, some of our upcoming episodes we're working on. Alan, what have, what have you been working on? I've been working on the topic of conformity assessment. It's when standards really come to life in an area of standardisation I'm quite interested in. Yeah, that's something I'm looking forward to that one. We trailed that a couple of times and uh, that will that will be great when we finally publish that episode. Cindy, how about you? I'm working on two exciting episodes actually covering the international perspective again. Um, one on the Commonwealth Standards Network program, which is a UK government funded program. Um, and a second one on the role of international standards to support the transition to a digital economy. So very excited about those two. That, those sound great. And from my side, I'm working on a consumers and standards mini series with colleagues from CPIN, which is the Consumer and Public Interest Network here at BSI. So look out for those upcoming episodes. Uh, so we should probably crack on. Alan, do you have a standards desk of news for us? I do indeed, Matthew. The headlines this week. ME for MPEG and building safety competence of individuals. The big news this week is the Joint Technical Committee of ISO and IEC has done it again and has been awarded another Technology and Engineering ME, the US-based National Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences presents Emmy Awards for Excellence in Artistic, Educational and Technical Achievements in Television. The Emmy was awarded to the Moving Pictures Expert Group, or MPEG, for the development of ISO slash IEC 14496-12. That's the ISO-based media file format. This file format is designed to contain time media information for presentation in a format that facilitates interchange, management, editing and presentation of the media. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you've been binging box sets during the pandemic, you'll have certainly been relying on the moving pictures experts and their file formats because they underpin all the major streaming platforms. Watch this space because the moving pictures guys have set their sights on genomes and MPEG-G, a new open standard for genomic 
information representation. So, it's expected to aid significantly the storage, transmission, and importantly, the processing of raw sequencing data that's used in genomes. Next up, the commenting period on BSI Flex 8670 overarching framework for building safety competence of individuals has just closed with over 800 comments received on the second version of this Flex standard. As we'll be hearing from Catherine Hunter later in this episode, Flex standards rapidly iterate through versions in response to open consultation. New versions can be created in a few weeks, so keep an eye out for version 3 coming soon. Back to you, Matthew. Thank you, Alan. And as always, you can find the links to those stories in the episode notes. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI Education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And today's story is all about the future of standards, which we explore with our guests, Ivan Salcedo and Catherine Hunter. Catherine works in BSI's standard services team and was involved in the development of BSI's new approach to standards development, BSI Flex. Her background is in sustainability and she worked in B2B publishing before joining BSI to develop our portfolio of sustainability standards. Ivan described himself as working at the intersection between technology, strategy and policy to help BSI navigate and shape the future of standards both nationally and internationally. As you'll hear, he talks passionately about the power of digital technologies to deliver economic and social good and the important role that standards have in improving productivity, sustainability and resilience. Ivan has held a number of innovation, product and management roles in different types of publishers and has been developing digital solutions for over 25 years. He currently leads BSI's input into the Smart Standards Programme and represents BSI on numerous groups related to digital standards and open source standards at SEN, SENLEC, ISO and the IEC. We hear from Ivan first and then Catherine. But before that, here's a quick guide to the normal way standards are made. A standard starts with an idea. Anyone can suggest an idea for a new standard. Every idea is assessed and stakeholders are consulted to see if there's a need for the standard. Next, a stakeholder group is formed to take the approved idea forward. Then the stakeholder group forms a committee or a drafting panel. The draft standard is circulated for public comment. The comments are considered and the committee or the drafting panel prepares an updated draft. After final approval by stakeholders, the standard is published. Standards are reviewed every two to five years. The committee or the drafting panel considers any comments received and decides if the standard should be reconfirmed, amended, revised or withdrawn. A decision to amend or revise leads to a new proposal and the cycle begins again. 
Now, Ivan, I introduced you there as someone who works at the intersection between technology, strategy and policy to help BSI navigate and shape the future of standards, both nationally and internationally. Can you tell us a bit more about that role? What it means is that I'm a complexity vortex. So um, I uh, attract problems to me and try and find a way to navigate uh, through that complexity on behalf of BSI and hopefully the entire standards ecosystem. In more kind of sensible terms, um, what it means is that I bring experience in uh, a number of different fields from I've been a developer, I've been an editor, I've worked in marketing, um, and I have worked a lot in strategy, particularly IT strategy. Um, So I I bring these skills together to look at what is a, a... wicked problem in the uh, in the jargon but is actually um, a very kind of um, convoluted way of saying um, that standards are are hard to change I don't we've had it well we definitely haven't had anyone so far describe themselves as a complexity vortex so uh, I think you stand alone there but that reminds me of the hitchhiker's guide uh, improbability drive. So it's all, it's all, it sounds very reminiscent of that. Now you mentioned there, um, Ivan, a number of different uh, roles that you've had in your in your career. I just wondered what's been your what's been your standards journey. Often we our guests talk about either being sort of steeped in standards or seduced by standards. How how did you get to this point? My career it owes its existence to standards. So there are two things that that, that are critical to my career. One is um, standards, particularly those developed by W3C. Um, I've worked in digital uh, most of my um, professional life. Um, And the second is open source. Um, So the uh, open availability of uh, standards and tools and information um, to create these digital products. So, but I, I have to confess, I wasn't really aware of um, standards and particularly formal standards until um, relatively late on. I was uh, working a, as a corporate um, communications person, kind of producing websites and, and editing. And um, I got to do the BSI proofreading uh, standard as a, an evening course. Um, and that's the very first time I remember coming into contact with BSI. And then very quickly, uh, because I am a complexity vortex, um, I got sucked into um, standards world uh, to the extent where I now actually sit on a committee making standards and I organize some of my work as if I was making a standard. So um, I think I have been seduced uh, by standards over time. I think we can add actually to we should add to this. I mean, sucked in by standards. That's a that's a good one too. Just just W three C. Can you explain that? Um, so the the organisation that looks after um, web standards or, or did uh, to begin with. So there are um, a consortia. Um, of uh, technology professionals um, similar to the IETF, um, the Internet Engineering Task Force, and other such uh, entities. They were originally responsible for HTML and um, CSS, so the, the language 
for markup and presentation on the web. And um, most of my early career was spent kind of grappling with um, companies who were not quite adhering to those standards. And uh, it, it's an easy thing for people to kind of be very blase about nowadays, but uh, in the days of dial-up modems um, and uh, very simple internet browsers, it was absolutely critical to have compliant um, pages if you wanted anyone to read things at all, as I once discovered when people started printing off things that uh, I'd put on our corporate website. And uh, if you put white text onto a colored background in those days, it would simply print out white paper. Um. <laughs> now, before our conversation, uh, we played in a, a quick summary of, of how standards are made. So from submitting an idea, forming a stakeholder group, drafting, public consultation, and so on, with, with the process ending up with a published document. Now, in terms of the history of this approach, I'm guessing that these fundamentals haven't really altered that much over the past 120 years. Uh, no, they, they, they haven't, and uh, for good reason. So um, best practice uh, and the agreement around best practice is a, is a, a bit of an art form, um, but it can be boiled down to a process and um, it has developed uh, slowly and been improved generically over a, a number of years. I, I normally do kind of a, a little prop show and tell at the moment. So um, what I what I often do is is kind of hold up a, the first standard I can get hold of, uh, which we still have in our catalogue, which is from um, uh, I think nine, the nineteen twenties. Um, but it's in a um, it, it's uh, obviously on paper. It's in a paper format that no longer exists uh, it, with uh, currencies that no longer exists. The catalogue will fit on an entire page. But the, the critical bit is that the content that's in that standard um, would be almost immediately understood today. So the content, um, the, the knowledge that is codified through standards uh, would be um, understood and usable, frankly. Um, and that's uh, largely because the process, uh, the quality that is introduced um, through standardization uh, of that uh, knowledge codification uh, has not really changed over, over the years. So if some of the things have stayed uh, very similar, what are they, obviously we've invited you on today to talk about sort of the future of standards. What are the drivers for change now? Well, um, Put simply, it's the changing technology environment around us. So for those 120 years uh, that standards have been produced in the UK, um, the, the, the dominant form has been a document. So for about 80 years, um, they were produced uh, in print. Then we started to also produce them as uh, what we used to call soft copy. Um, uh, and hard copy, so that was sort of the introduction of PDF. Slowly, we've been transitioning to PDF only. Um, so very, very few of our standards are actually um, produced hard copy first uh, now. It's uh, done by exception usually. Um, and um, uh, but nowadays, 
basically um, the the way that standards are used is, is quite different from it, how it was 20 or 30 years ago. So um, in they're no longer uh, a document that you kind of file away on a shelf and forget about or occasionally go off and uh, refer to and scribble on, uh, go around to a design desk and make sure that someone's been compliant, tick it off on a piece of paper and then um, go back. So the, the, the way that um, standards are actually used is increasingly in software. So um, we need to make sure that standards uh, can easily uh, be transferred into uh, a machine readable format um, so that you can put uh, so that you can get standards into uh, requirements management software or into your CAD program or into your BIM model um, uh, uh, or into your automation system. Uh, this is what we uh, now refer to as smart uh, standards. So um, smart standards are standards that are machine applicable, readable and transferable. Um, and they will become the focus of, of a lot of activity over the next few years. So I just wonder what are sort of are there any other sort of market conditions that have changed significantly that we, that uh, um, this this new way of developing standards is responding to? Uh, yes. So I mean, obviously, technology adoption is the macro uh, change, and that's uh, commonly referred to as digital transformation, and that is happening through through most industries. Uh, um, at, at kind of different paces, but um, there are some specific industries, particularly those that are heavily users of standards, um, construction, automotive, aerospace, uh, where um, historically productivity um, growth has not been consistent or has not been um, the same as for other industries. So, um, uh, the kind of main actors in these industries are keen to see how they can become more efficient, uh, produce better quality outcomes, um, more secure, safer, and increasingly also that there are there are new pressures, things like personalization um, and customization. So um, the, the, the whole shape of manufacturing has uh, altered pretty dramatically in the last um, 20 or 30 years. Um, and that's, uh, you know, playing through a number of different industries from food to um, clothing um, to uh, other forms of manufacturing. And ultimately, it's not just the factory, it's the supply chain. Um, and then once you get into supply chain, you need to assure the supply chain and kind of, and now kind of the, the, the focus is, is a lot on kind of trust and um, can we prove where something came from? Is the material you're using genuine? Um, and uh, and the, the very kind of cutting edge of standards at the moment is probably around ethics. Um, so is this uh, uh, is this um, standard introducing or addressing bias um, in certain aspects of it? The way that it was tested, the the, the perhaps even the shape of people that it is being aimed at, um, let alone, you know, kind of more subtle things around race, gender, etc. And all of this, at the end of the day, is driven by technology. So, so the ethics, um, a lot of the ethics thing is driven by 
the increased adoption of artificial intelligence uh, throughout the supply chain. Uh, the supply chain is adopting artificial intelligence because it wants to be more productive. Uh, it needs to do better with more resources, be more sustainable, X, Y, Z. So you kind of have a virtuous cycle now that's, that's driving change um, at, at, at ever increasing speed. Ever wondered why certain standards are made or who gets to make them? Why standards are numbered the way they are and who gets to choose the numbers? Or maybe you have a burning question about standards related to your job or the sector in which you work? Well, this is your chance to ask the BSI Education Podcast and we will get your questions answered. All you have to do is record your question via audio message and send it to education at bsigroup.com. We'll put the best ones to a panel of experts in a future episode, so stay tuned. I just wonder then from... You mentioned they're machine readable, and you mentioned there are some some sort of issues about how an organisation operates and, and improves. With with this sort of new approach in mind, what difference will those changes make for organisations then about how they sort of consume the standard? How how what would it what would it look like, and, and what will how will they experience it in in terms of how it's how it's being used within an organisation? Well, we've done um, some ethnographic research uh, on how people use standards so um, that means that uh, we've we've actually sent people out to kind of uh, work with the people who actually use standards um, and see how they are uh, what happens if once people have either downloaded or purchased them uh, and that may surprise some of your listeners that that kind of this you know this this maybe isn't kind of common practice but um, historically Standards bodies have uh, concerned themselves with the the making process, so the um, the, the the rule set, the the, the selection of um, committee members, the identification of subjects to to you to um, look at, and then the the generation of a good quality um, standard. Um, so the publication is of a certain quality. Um, so what what happened after it left? We we weren't really um, all that aware of uh, what we could do was was kind of measure an, an overall economic benefit of standards um, uh, to to the entire economy. So um, to try and address that, uh, we are we, we've gone into companies and looked at how they use them, and we and we've found that there's a there's a typical um, kind of sequence of events that happens um, when uh, customers. Uh, look for standards and, and uh, to solve their problems. So the first is um, they have a problem. So um, we're we're looking to to understand um, uh, user problems um, a little bit better. Then they um, have to discover um, what standards are applicable to that problem. So um, some of the areas around smart standards are to do with taxonomy management are to do with um, uh, identifiers and base and relationships so how standards relate to each other um, what how they're classified um, what problems they look to address what even what actor uh, should be using them so that's the discovery phase then um, what happens after someone has got hold of a standard um, typically the people who do access them then don't use them directly what happens is they go through an interpret stage. And in the interpretation stage, uh, that this is typically performed by engineers or by 
subject matter experts, they will kind of decompose a standard. They will kind of say, do I do I understand the provisions um, that are within here? Um, uh, are there forms of clarification um, that are required? Uh, what company policies or other standards do I need to um, understand what to do with uh, on my problem? And in smart standards, that uh, is about uh, enriching it in various different ways. So um, that's about making it clear uh, what to what is a requirement, uh, what is a, a reference. Um, ideally, structuring those requirements in a in a better way, so that they're more uh, consistent with with user needs, um, and also um, making um, it easier to cross reference and perhaps pull together um, information from multiple standards at the same time. So that's an interpretation stage. Uh, then people go through an adaptation phase. And in the adaptation phase, uh, people take the kind of the raw input of the standard and then they put it into their own context. Um, so that could mean that they're creating a, uh, from a simple perspective, a, a, a spreadsheet of things that they need to do or they could be putting it into a formal uh, requirements management system um, or um, uh, plugging it into a, a CAD diagram BIM model, as I suggested earlier, running some software, putting some parameters in somewhere, uh, or increasingly um, uh, more kind of, um, kind of esoteric things like um, IoT sensors, uh, putting a standard directly on there, and uh, more and more often, the, the challenge is going to be how do we translate it into a digital twin environment? So there's uh, there's quite a lot of adaptation work, and, that, and a lot of the adaptation is about um, kind of formats and um, structures. So um, our, part of my work at the moment focuses a lot on how we allow for uh, semantic interoperability of, of standards. So how does the, the content within a standard um, fit within a, a wider um, a graph of, uh, of other knowledge. Um, there's two more phases that, that people still go through uh, that they then, you know, so having found out what to do, they know that they've worked out what they need to do about it. They've then transferred it into their own application. They then need to use the standard. So, um, um, the most obvious example of that is in uh, certification activities or compliance activities, where it, it basically, you know, you, you can formally apply the standard. Um, but then, but one of the, the the main changes that we'll see through Smart is we um, expect to go more and more towards a continuous assessment um, type uh, environment. Um, so at the moment, uh, compliance is is often a point in time exercise. Uh, you might get visited once a year by an auditor, um, or it's something that that you know if you if you do it on a voluntary basis, uh, you might go around the factory once a month or whatever it is, whether it's a stock take or uh, you're looking at a manufacturing line, or you might um, assess your new design, you know, against um, some specification that you've got. But you typically only do that at, at, you know once um, or on a periodic cycle, whereas um, a smart standard will enable you to do that on a kind of continuous basis um, and also to potentially keep plugged in so um, uh, it's not kind of 
unreasonable to expect um, your design to know when a standard has been updated rather than you have to tell it, I, I now need to update this specification to meet a, a new form of best practice. The best practice can actually alert you that, that kind of hang on, this parameter has changed or you should consider these other um, provisions that are, are now suggested. Um, and, and over time, things get more and more sophisticated. Then the last thing, um, where customers can expect change, uh, and I think this is a big push for, for everyone, um, is about measurement. Um, so uh, one of the reasons that um, uh, we've been fairly slow to change the, uh, the way that standards are offered to end users is because we have a fairly weak market feedback. Um, we, we don't we, we haven't historically known um, how people uh, use standards or been able to help people understand, well, you're using this standard in this way, but these other people are using this standard in another way, um, except through the medium of, of kind of the, the compliance frameworks, which are um, often kind of focused on, on pretty specific areas of, of, of management. So um, what we hope um, through the introduction of, of smart standards, which uh, is to kind of continue a digital thread where we can um, continually improve the um, standardization outcomes for um, end users by having these kind of feedback loops um, acting on a much uh, quicker cycle. Um, it, in uh, in standards terms, that uh, is likely to end up with, um, well, so it's not likely, it is already um, producing new forms of standardization. And I believe you're going to be talking about Flex uh, later with um, Catherine. Um, but that kind of um, uh, cyclical um, regeneration, uh, regeneration is not, a, is not the right word. That's the, I'm, I'm still going back to my science fiction introduction. Um, the, the improvement, the continual improvement, there's a business word for you that's bland enough. Um, um, the continual improvement of the standard uh, is uh, enabled through um, SMART. Well, you, you describe there something that sounds extremely radical and transformative. And we, st we started the conversation around uh, the simple process, ending up with a, a published document, which, which over the last... Uh, 20, 30 years has become a, a PDF. But what you're describing there is something very, very different. Now, obviously, um, what we talk on the podcast a lot about standards being an international game. And obviously, the issues you've, you've, you've spoken about there are important to BSI as the national standards body and as, as a standards organization. But obviously, we can't be the only um, part of the standards community that have an interest in this. So I just wonder what are your... Um, our colleagues at European level, San and Senlec, and an, an international level, ISO and the IEC in particular, what, how are they involved in in these changes? Well, it's interesting you say that uh, you ask that, Matthew, because uh, your co-host Alan, um, that's actually how I met Alan, uh, is on an international uh, group at he the gets, IEC. He gets everywhere. He gets absolutely. He does everywhere. everywhere. He does. Um, so that's the international level looking at the future standards and. Um, the, 
the interesting thing is kind of the different kind of people looking at um, at change, but for, for slightly different reasons. So uh, the IEC is um, dominated by big electrotechnical companies, big manufacturers. So they're they're very um, they're very clued up and they're, they're very keen to to change. At the ISO level, um, it's very much um, driven by uh, committee members and particularly those working in industrial automation and um, uh, things like that. So people who have um, who are very familiar with technology and who have been um, working in systems and systems methodologies for a number of years. Uh, one of the um, interesting conversations I had in, in and I talked to a lot of people about smart standards, I, I ended up talking to the chair of or the outgoing chair of ANT4, uh, which is the BSI uh, representative to the industrial automation committees and i was talking to him about this new concept that we were coming up with of machine readable standards and he, he said dear boy we've been doing this for 20 years um so um the the thing is is that kind of outside uh, the world has been moving to to data for um a long time and um it it take the the, the nature of the standardization ecosystem is such that um, the things that make it really good uh, tend to make it quite slow to change because you protect what's good um, and you are nervous about what might be different. So um, we're not the most innovative organizations, although we do deal with very innovative subjects. It's a kind of an interesting kind of dichotomy at the end of the day. Um, but everyone is moving. Um, and um, the, the pace of change will, will, will accelerate. Uh, and what we we can already see at the international level um, that there are a number of database standards, for example, um, and we expect these to increase. There are also um, uh, an increasing number of um, ontology standards, uh, and um, the, the, the days when we publish those as documents has, has long passed its useful life. Um, there are <clears throat> several dozen of those, and there's about a thousand vocabularies and taxonomies a, a, across a vast range of subjects. Again, um, their usefulness as documents is 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 limited compared to their usefulness as as um, as data that can be exchanged between systems, and 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 that kind of process is what what we are expecting to apply to more and more standards content. Um, so we can expect standards to uh, to move from being um, documents to being collections of things that work together to solve a problem. Um, and so uh, the, the transition that we're looking at at the moment is moving from a, um, a document level to a clause level, or ideally a sentence level. So can we isolate individual, individual provisions? Um, and then ultimately, those provisions may or may not then be treated as a as a data item. Um, uh, and what that means is that you'll be able to uh, change or reference things very very specifically. Sorry. So the first thing is about referencing. The second is that you'll be able to uh, collect things from different standards together or from different domains together, uh, and they will be consistent with each other and they'll they'll um, help you solve a problem. And that's because more and more problems. Um, 
uh, I know that you you uh, you scoffed at my intersectionality, but more and more problems straddle different domains. They're not they're not uh, you know they're not constrained by um, things anymore. Uh, to give you an example, one of my favourite uh, new standards working its way through the ISO ecosystem is on uh, the, the the digital twin of feet. So there are um, I think three different standards going through on digital twins to do with um, shoe production. Um, and um, you wouldn't have thought that cobblers uh, were going to be the most um, innovative um, industry, but um, but they are, because all of them are having to be. They're all having to develop new skills, new capabilities, new digital um, capabilities. Um, and increasingly, you know, kind of um, we can expect there to be a, a drift towards, uh, you know, continued drift towards international standards um, because of the globally connected supply chains and, uh, and, and people needing to reference things in a very consistent way. But also um, we can expect to see, um, you know, kind of probably more standards in, uh, in emerging technologies um, being developed quicker, uh, emerging, um, pardon the pun, quicker. Um, because people will be more and more aware of the benefit that um, standardization can bring in an emerging market because it's it's about helping you reduce unnecessary competition and unnecessary cost. Um, we're all fighting, you know, kind of enormous societal pressures, uh, the pandemic, climate change, aging populations, antibiotic resistance, the move to smart cities, um, uh, transport, you know, mobility questions. All of these things um, need us to focus our attention on progress as quickly as possible. And standards accelerate that process uh, when they're done right. Um, and so that's what kind of I, I see as the future um, standards helping to solve these big uh, problems and my job is to make more people more aware of that problem um, and make it easier for them to uh, to actually benefit I just wonder as a, as a final uh, thought Ivan you, you mentioned there that a smart smart standards of the future in, in the sense of of how they are developed and how they're used. I just wonder if you were crystal ball gazing, uh, say in 50 years' time, whether we would recognise uh, the standards-making system. In, in, in a sense, how, how you've described there some quite radical change. Uh, will it be so different that we'll look back and think, wow, how, why did we ever do it that way? Would it be that that different in 50 years' time? Um, yes and no. So some standards are better set by a machine in future. So if we think of the, uh, so the example I normally give here is the, the evolution of uh, the yard or the meter. So originally that was a physical object. Um, it was literally a, a yard of, of um, metal. Um, and then uh, various things have happened over time, including um, one of the reference yards being melted down in a fire. Um, that meant that uh, 
it progressively changed from being a physical object that you could phys- that you could hold and touch and agree that it was the same and measure it against other ones through to what it is now um, uh, in terms of a um, uh, I think it's something to do with the, the speed of light. I can't remember. Um, I should have checked before I started on that anecdote, but uh, I didn't realise I was going to make it. Our top production team will be looking it up right now. Well, the top production team have come up trumps with some information on the meter. Now, the definition of the meter has changed over the years since the metric system was first introduced in 1793, though the actual length of the meter obviously has not changed. New definitions have been introduced to make it easier to measure the meter's length more precisely. The meter was originally defined in 1793 as one ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. The meter is currently defined as the length of the path travelled by light in a vacuum in 1 over 299,792,458 of a second. The current definition was adopted in 1983 and modified slightly in 2002. So, now you know. The thing is, it's more accurate uh, to for, for it to be a kind of an abstract thing. And one of the things that, that will change is that some standards will be self-writing, if you like what I mean. They'll be autonomous. Um, and that could be um, uh, based on usage, you need to make this safer. And we're going to apply that as a, as a, if you like, a software patch automatically. And all devices that are connected to this standard, quote unquote, will then have new parameters. And you can already see that actually in some of the um, things like uh, uh, the connected autonomous vehicles, uh, where you can issue a, a software patch and uh, some of the underlying capabilities change overnight. Uh, and we're all used to that with phones, and we're used to that with with other forms of technology. So um, you can. This isn't really a fifty-year uh, view, but but some of these things will, will change um, uh, quite quite quickly. But other things are not going to change at all because ultimately um, in deciding what is good, uh, what is valuable, you need to make a judgment. And that judgment is based on expertise and it's based on an understanding of the outside world. Um, so I think we'll, we will always have um, a consensus process that is uh, human-centric and um, increasingly uh, ethics-driven and potentially, and, and I would hope, also kind of uh, problem-driven. Now, Ivan, you, you've talked there about about the pace of change, and it sounds as if things are are actually moving really fast. But I wonder, given the, the, the fast pace of the world, and you've mentioned there about the global challenges we're all facing, I wonder, is the pace fast enough? Well, I think that's a really difficult question in the standards ecosystem because of the this market feedback loop that I mentioned earlier. That we, we, we the the existing revision cycle is is typically three to five years, um, and that's the first we really get to know as to uh, how a standard um, it has worked or, or not. We obviously have some commercial indicators in 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 the, the near term, but we don't really know kind of how it went down in the market for for, for a number of years. So that does kind of create this inertia, um, and so what we really need is um, for the engineers of the future and the standards makers of the future and the standards users out there at the moment to you know kind of get in touch with uh, their standards bodies that they work with and really kind of demand the change um, that they need 
in order to make it relevant to them, to make it usable to them, to make it comparable and experienced to the other kinds of information products and systems that, that people use uh, nowadays. I mean, ultimately, um, none of us want to become irrelevant by default um, through inaction. Um, the standards world has a relatively uh, unique position in society, but it does protect it sometimes from from kind of necessary change, um, in my view. Uh, obviously, uh, my background is is digital and open, so I, I have some biases. But anything that that your listeners can do to um, badger people uh, or provide evidence for change. Um, uh, and we can provide, um, you know, some contact details if people want to get in touch. So that, that that's perfectly fine. Um, that would be really helpful. Yes, that's that's a fantastic suggestion there, uh, Ivan. And the the easiest way to get in touch is just drop an email to education at bsigroup.com and we'll take it from there. Now, earlier in our conversation, Ivan mentioned Catherine Hunter. I picked up the Future of Standards story with Catherine, and specifically on the issue of the new standard BSI Flex. But I started with asking her about her role for BSI in standard services. So I work in the team standard services. We work on the development of new standards, um, particularly in areas where we don't already have established technical committees. So typically we would be um, looking at new areas of work for BSI, trying to understand what the particular problems and challenges are in those areas, um, trying to understand how a new standard might help, who might need to be involved in that standard, um, how does that new standard potentially link to other standards, and really scoping those new areas of work and bringing people in to, to work on those, sort of reaching out to stakeholders to, to, to build the groups of um, experts that we need to help us on standards development. And, um, and typically we because they're new areas of work for BSI, they tend to be areas of innovation um, is where most of our activity tends to be within my team. Now, we we jokingly say to people, uh, we ask them whether they've been uh, either steeped in, whether they're steeped in standards or, or seduced by standards, because we're really keen on on people's individual standards journeys. How, how did you get to this point? What's, your, what's been your standards journey? So my standards journey, I... Th- at the outset, I would confess I'm probably steeped in standards. Um, my standards journey started at university, actually, um, as part of the master's that I was studying. Um, BS 7750 on environmental management systems were quite a critical part of that course. Uh, and standards have stayed with me ever since. Um, so moving on from university into working for a B2B publisher where we helped people understand how to implement standards and get value from them. And then when I joined BSI, obviously standards became really integral. Um, And I did a lot of work on new and interesting areas, uh, for example, carbon product carbon footprinting and greenhouse gas emissions. So I, I, I confess that I am steeped in standards. (laughs) Now we had, uh, we interviewed uh, David Bell, director of standards policy here at BSI way back in episode uh, four, I think it was. Corrections corner here. It was actually episode six, talking about stakeholder engagement. And David described himself as a lifer. So I think maybe that's uh, maybe got to apply that term to you as well. 
uh, I suspect that might be the case, yeah. <laughs> now, Catherine, we've invited you on here to talk about BSI Flex. Before we go any further, let's just hear a quick guide. BSI's Flex standards provide a flexible way to develop consensus-based good practice that dynamically adapts to keep pace with fast-changing markets. Flex standards, known as BSI Flex for short, have four key elements. Flexible development, the scope and rate of change are market-driven, rapid iteration, new versions can be created in just a few weeks, responsive evolution, dynamically adapts to the needs of the market over time, and finally, open consultation, focused on areas where consensus can be achieved quickly. Now, we just heard there a short summary about what BSI Flex is, but I'm interested as to, as to why, why is BSI Flex being developed? You know, what have, been, what have been the drivers for this new approach? So we did some research um, looking at particularly the new areas of work, that, new areas of innovation that we were working on to try and understand if our, our current standards capability was keeping pace with innovation. And it became very clear that... Um, with rapid adoption of new technologies, digital disruption, that really rapid pace of change, and actually the fact that that change is also continuous, that really meant that our our existing approaches to standards development couldn't keep pace. Um, so one of the significant drivers for the development of BSI Flex was to develop an approach to standards development that allowed us to keep pace and to also um, develop standards on a much more iterative basis that really responded to that continuous change that we were seeing in those areas of innovation. So it was very much initially around innovation and supporting innovation. But interestingly, in the last year, um, we've also recognised that it gave us a fantastic way to respond to um, a sort of large and sudden shock, like a global pandemic, where there was a need to very rapidly develop guidance or specifications and be in a position to modify those at speed when uh, new new thinking emerged emerged around for example safe working practices and covid um, so those those are the two main drivers that that we now recognize for the development of flex now we've covered uh, in previous podcasts we've done spotlights on individual standards whether they're british standards or or international ones and we've also covered pas I just wonder, with Flex, you know, what is the fundamental difference from other standards developed by BSI and the standards world? And, and how do you balance that speed of development with rigour? Yeah, it's a really good question because um, we were very conscious that we needed to be developing a new standard that was different and additive to our existing mechanisms that we have for standards development. Um, and obviously, we develop British standards, we contribute to the development of European and international standards, and we have BSI PAS as well. So we were very um, careful to outline the, the circumstances in which we might need to deploy something like BSI Flex. And we talk about a level of certainty and the maturity of knowledge that might exist around a particular subject area. Now, where you have got um, a high degree of certainty, and where you've got a good level of maturity around what should be in a standard, a maturity of understanding about what should be within a standard. Something like a British standard um, is absolutely perfect because it's um, it brings stability to that particular market. 
um, it's it's a good sort of longer term solution that isn't going to change rapidly because actually where you've got that stability and knowledge, you need certainty to allow people to invest around systems and solutions to implement the standard and really get value from it. At the other end of the scale, where you're dealing with very low levels of certainty, um, typically in areas of innovation where thinking is still changing, where even the language that you're using to discuss that terminal terminology, that technology, excuse me, is still evolving, you need a slightly different mechanism of standardization. So what we've tried to do is with Flex to cater for that, that end of the spectrum, which is very much about high levels of uncertainty. People are still really trying to understand what good practice is and that good practice is, is changing rapidly. And then we have paths sort of between those two um, ends of the spectrum where we, we typically use that for sort of um, for innovation where it's settled down a little bit. So we have this these sort of spectrum of standards that we can use depending on what is happening um, with within the market and the level of maturity and understanding within the market. Your second question um, was around how do you accommodate that rapid speed but retain the robustness? And this is this is such a key point for us because in all of our research, um, the the feedback we had was, yes, we want standards to be able to be developed at speed and to be flexible, but please don't undermine the credibility of them. Please make sure they are as robust. And so um, as well as trying to work at pace, we're trying to retain those core principles around consensus, stakeholder engagement, public consultation. We, we had such a clear signal from people we worked with that, that consensus particularly was still critical. So we had to make sure that we could marry up that speed with all of those um, those principles that we're, that we're known for in terms of standards development. So we've talked in the past about uh, PARS being a route to an international standard. I just, I'm just wondering whether um, with the BSI Flex approach, I presume there's, there's still a route to an international standard? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in the same way as when we develop a, a PAS, we would work with a particular group of stakeholders. It may be a UK-based group of stakeholders. Um, once we've reached agreement, um, we can absolutely use the output of, from the FLEX standard and the PAS standard as a basis for an international standard as well. And this has been a really interesting way of working um, in many subjects that we've covered, particularly some technology areas, whereby we've established a UK position quite quickly um, in a very responsive way and been able to use that as the basis of an international standard going forward. So yes, absolutely, both of these routes, the PAS and the FLEX, can, can lead to international standards. Now, you mentioned uh, a second ago about uh, developing the safe working guidelines in the light of obviously the global pandemic and, and COVID-19. I'm just wondering, in, in what other areas has this new approach been used so far? So an, another area related to the pandemic, um, so Flex 5555 on community face coverings, uh, is a very recent piece of work for us that we kicked off at the end of November, early December, um, with the first version of that standard being published in early January. Now, this is, again, it, it's it's a, a response to the need to move very quickly um, on an issue that's that's very much related to the current pandemic. Um, we've all become really familiar with community face coverings. Um, it's an essential part of our life now. And I think what was really needed was a, a robust uh, specification that was suitable for the UK um, so that manufacturers, testing houses, retailers and consumers um, could um, 
manufacture and test single use and reusable face coverings. And I, I do have to point out, this is not PPE and not medical face coverings. It's the community face coverings that, that we all know and love. But what's really interesting about this is the timescales within which we work. So it was about a month um, for the first version to be produced. Um, that has now been available for use, but critically also for further comment. And this is a key feature of Flex is that um, we don't stop with that version. We continue to actively seek feedback on the current version um, in order to generate the next version. And that's where the flexibility comes in. So we've been asking during January, we've been asking people for feedback on the current version. We've now reached the end of that period of consultation and we're looking through the comments with a view to generating the next version um, fairly quickly. So that's the dynamic nature of this this type of standardization. And it gives you a feel for the timescales that we're working with. I mean, it may be hard for you to answer this question, but where, where do you anticipate the biggest areas of growth for, for this particular type of standard? Um, I think the, the two examples that I've mentioned um, are obviously related to the pandemic. If I just quickly mention another example, which I, I think is very much in the area where we would expect there to be growth. I mean, we're all hoping that we're coming out the other side of, of the global pandemic. So hopefully we don't need to deploy this method for, for too many more responses to that situation. But going back to our original plans, it was around innovation um, and around new technologies. And just to give you one example is the work we've been doing on connected and automated vehicles. So this is, this is a, a fairly big piece of work that we're doing to look at standards um, to support the rollout of um, connected and autonomous vehicles. And it's all to do with um, a range of standards looking at design, testing and deployment, um, safety and various aspects, data management, all sorts of things to do with connected and automated vehicles. And in common with any new area of standardization and new technology, there is there was initially a lack of a common language um, a common way of, of a common and consistent way of defining some of the terms that are related to this particular area. So we have developed a flex which sits at the heart of that standardization program. And that flex is a set of vocabulary that we've now produced three versions of over time um, to reflect the changing thinking, the, you know, the very rapid changing thinking around a common set of, of terms for connected and automated vehicles. Now, that is very typical of where we envisage flex would be useful where you're trying to accommodate that rapid technological change and so for me i think that is typical of the area where we would expect to see growth going forward i'm glad you mentioned transport and mobility it is something that we are going to feature in a in a future episode um now you you talked um at the beginning about well i asked you about balancing uh the speed of development with with rigor in the in the standards development process and i'm wondering uh, given that you, you you managed to achieve that, will all standards eventually be made this way? Well, there are certain aspects of the way that we work um, that are specific to Flex, and there are certain aspects in the way that we develop them that will be transferable to other standards. So um, some of the features of Flex, which I think will remain unique to Flex, are around the ability when you're building consensus, if you can't agree on a particular area, you could park it for that version and then come back to it to the next version because you know that you're going to have another another opportunity to discuss it with the advisory group and agree on what should be in there. Um, some of the methods of working and the tools that we're using to really make that a rapid and agile process 
I can absolutely see transferring over to other areas of standards development. So we're asking our advisory group to collaborate online on content development in real time. So they're, they're commenting, they can see what everybody else is commenting, they can have discussions around the content in a far more interactive way. That way of working has a place across any type of standards development that's not unique to Flex. Um, but there, there are some aspects of Flex which are very specific to Flex itself. Uh, and that, that's really around that iterative nature, I think. Now, Catherine, we uh, talk on the podcast a lot about standards being an international game. And as a final thought, then, I'm wondering what are the views are of the rest of the standards community to, to BSI Flex? Well, I think that there is wide recognition that we're all dealing with the same the same problem and the same challenge. Um, we we have obviously spoken to other um, people engaged in standards development, other national standards bodies, to share our experience and to learn from everybody else's experience. Um, we, we haven't had specific feedback on Flex at this stage, but we're really interested to share what we've learned um, and, and to learn from others, because I think in the spirit of Flex, which is all about continuing to accommodate rapid change we will be continuing to evolve our approach on flex as we learn more as new tools become available as we share knowledge with others you know facing the same challenge and and learn from how they are they are addressing that challenge as well to find out more information on bsi flex just click on the link in the episode notes you have been listening to an episode of the bsi education podcast to find out more visit bsi group com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production.